0: If you are new here, you're just checking us out, or really wherever you find yourself coming in this morning, I want to welcome you. Welcome to Redeemer. If you find yourself bored spiritually, or burnt out spiritually, or don't know what you think about things spiritually, or if you're just excited to be here and loving the fact that you got one hour less sleep last night, and it's just so great that the spring is here, however you find yourself this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, If you're new to Redeemer, what is Redeemer? Redeemer. Redeemer is a church, and what that means is we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor. And the way that we go about doing that is we gather together each week like this, online, in worship, over Zoom meetings, so that we can uh, worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and rest in his great love for us. Then we get together throughout the week, individually, and over small groups. We go on walks together, we go on runs together, we get mannies and petties together, and we remind one another of his great love for us. And as we rest in his love and remind one another of his love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service and seeking justice and forming relationships and uh, trying to live a life of love because we want to reflect the great love of God. So that's a little bit about who we are. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor as we rest and remind and reflect his love here in Midtown. And in order to help us do that through this season of Lent, we have been looking at uh, this great letter from the New Testament called 1 Peter, and we're trying to answer this question, what does it look like to be the church in a post-Christian culture? And what has been such a helpful metaphor that this letter uses to answer that question is this metaphor of referring to the church as exiles, as as sojourners. In other words, this is not our home. And therefore, we should expect to not totally fit in in Memphis or fit in in America or wherever we happen to find ourselves in this world because this world's not our home. We're always going to feel a little strange, a little different, a little out of place. And what I want you to see this morning is that we also have this strange blessing. There's lots of things that are strange about the church, but what I want you to see this morning from this passage is that we have a strange blessing. Even that word is a little strange. It's a very um, churchy word, religious word, blessing. What does that even mean? Well, you see it in verse uh, 9. It pops up. He says, "'Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing.'" Verse 14, you see it again. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now at its most basic level, blessing has to do with happiness. The blessed life is the happy life. It's the good life. You you, you even see this idea in verse 10. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. That's the idea of a full life, good days, the blessed life, the good life. Now, when you and I think of the good life, we typically tend to think in terms of luxury, comfort, uh, signature cocktails, uh, jet skis, lake houses, Patagonia vests. That's the good life for many of us. That is not what Peter is talking about here. When he talks about the good life, the blessed life, he says um, it's gonna look a little different and the way that you get there is way more counterintuitive than you think. In fact, what I wanna show you from this passage is that the route to the blessed life, the good life, is gonna involve three things and they're very counterintuitive. Here they are. Blessing is gonna be found when you, number one, fight your instincts, when you, number two, confuse your neighbors, And number three, you receive your substitute. That's what Peter is showing you. This is the path to the good life. Fight your instincts, confuse your neighbors, receive your substitute. Let's look at these one at a time. Here's number one. Blessing is found when you fight your instincts. In other words, what Peter is doing is he's calling us to do something that is radically counterintuitive, something that goes against the grain of all of your natural instincts. Look at it in verse nine do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, why does he have to tell us don't repay evil with evil? The reason he has to tell us that, is because that is what is most fundamentally natural to us. When you encounter evil, you experience evil, you get hurt, it is your natural knee-jerk reaction to pay back, to punish, to retaliate, to respond to evil with evil. Uh, In Mountain City, Tennessee, which is on the east side of our state, Back in um, uh, February of 2012, there was a man that was arrested for uh, killing two people in his town, double homicide. And after he was arrested, it came out that the reason why he committed these two murders was because um, these two people had unfriended, defriended, whatever the right word is, defriended his daughter on Facebook. And he felt so insulted by that, so disrespected by that, murdered them. The month before that, this is um, actually, no, the November before that, this was November of 2011 in Iowa, there was a woman who was defriended on Facebook by her neighbor, and so she set her neighbor's garage on fire, was arrested for arson. The uh, month before that, October 2011, in Texas, there was a a man who physically assaulted his own wife for failing to like his Facebook status. Horrific. These are all true stories. You can look up all these. What do all three of these little stories have in common, other than Facebook? They all involve revenge, retaliation. Somebody experienced some degree of disrespect, hurt, mistreatment and the natural instinct was pay back hit harder punish retaliate here's what's crazy is that you and I we don't really need training in this that is just our natural hardwiring that's just what we do most naturally we experience evil and we respond with more evil but don't you see the problem with that instinct don't you see the the, the danger in that instinct hamilton did remember in the, uh, the musical Hamilton, where Alexander Hamilton is singing the song, My Shot, and he is he's thinking out the implications of what's going to happen with what would become the Revolutionary War, and I included one of the lines in your handout, but here's what he says. He's thinking, he says, okay, if we win our independence, does that guarantee freedom for our descendants, or... Will the blood we shed begin an endless cycle of vengeance and death with no defendants? You see what he's saying? If we just respond to the way that we've been hurt with more hurt, it just creates this endless cycle of vengeance. And how do you break the cycle? If you respond to evil with evil, you have become the very thing that you hate. You have become evil. So what breaks the cycle? You fight your instincts. That's what Peter is saying. Look again at verse nine. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Meaning instead of retaliating, you bless. You don't just ignore them. You don't cut them off. You actually seek good for them. This is what he says. Look down at verse 10. If you want the good life, you want the blessed life, he says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. It was a Friday morning, September 28th, 1962 in Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama. Martin Luther King Jr. is speaking at the Southern Christian Leaders Conference. There's about 300 people out in the crowd. And as he's speaking, there's a, there's a white man about six rows in named Roy James. Roy James is 6'2", maybe about my height, 200 pounds. Um, he's wearing uh, gray slacks, a white-collared shirt, his black hair parted to the right, And he's a member of the American Nazi Party. And as King is delivering his address, this man, Roy James, is getting increasingly angry. And so he jumps up out of his seat, rushes to the stage, and lands a a, a right hook right into King's jaw. And King kind of stumbles back, and so Roy swings again and hits him in the neck. And you imagine, at this moment, kind of pandemonium just burst loose. Ralph Abernathy, one of King's good friends, rushes over, grabs and restrains the, the guy. Everybody in the crowd jumps up, and they are ready to come to the stage and rip this guy limb from limb. In fact, there's, you know, reported one of the women in the crowd shouted out, "Skin him!" Like we were going to hurt this man. And King, although he is dazed and he's he he's staggered, he's still standing, and he and he uses his hands to tell the crowd to back down, back down, back down, and he says, "Stop." He says, "Don't touch him. We have to pray for him." So him and Ralph calmly escort this man into the back room. Now, in the middle of that crowd is one of the um, civil rights activists, Rosa Parks. She sees this whole scene unfold, and so she runs out of the store, runs out of the space to go down to a neighboring drugstore to buy some aspirin and a coke for Dr. King. She does that, and when she gets into the back room, she discovers that King has already provided a soft drink for this guy, and they are sitting there talking politely. And here's what she says about this whole story. She says, I was so proud of Dr. King. His restraint was more powerful than a hundred fists. His restraint was more powerful than a hundred fists. To be punched in the face publicly, and not punch back to defend the man from this crowd, to care for him with kindness by providing him a Coke. And then actually later that morning, this man was arrested and King refused to press charges. Doesn't that, on the one hand, if you were to experience that, I think in our modern moment, that would feel so weak to be punched in the face Publicly, and to not punch back makes you literally feel like you're a punching bag because you are. And yet, his restraint was more powerful than a thousand fifths of retaliation. He did not return evil for evil, but he ret- responded to evil with blessing and kindness. That is what Peter is actually calling us to do. How are we doing? Are you seeking the good of the people that you disagree with online? When you see somebody post something, you think, okay, that is crazy. Politically, theologically, spiritually, whatever. Are you salivating for that person to get annihilated and disrespected online? Are you wanting them to get put in their place? Or are you thinking, how can I seek to bless this person that I disagree with? how can I seek to love and to bless my enemies? That's the blessed life, believe it or not. To fight your instincts to retaliate and to actually respond with blessing, seeking their good. That's the first thing. That's the first counterintuitive path. Fight your instincts. There's more here, so let's keep going. Peter also says, um, if you want the blessed life, you got to confuse your neighbor's. And I mean that in the best possible way. Here's what I mean by that. In this passage, if you look at it, there are two different responses that people have to Christians. There are two different ways that people experience Christians, and I wanna show you one of these at a time. Here's the first. The first response is to mistreat Christians. Look at verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's saying, okay, if you're gonna pursue righteousness you're gonna suffer. And what does that look like? Well, look down at verse 16. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior on and on. But he's saying, if you're gonna pursue righteousness in this life, you're gonna get slandered, you're gonna get reviled, you're gonna be insulted, you're gonna be mistreated. If you're a Christian, you will not be taken seriously in a lot of circles. Your beliefs sound primitive and offensive to a lot of people, I think what's interesting is that Christianity seems to be uniquely hated in our culture. Uh, <laughs> I think Christians have given the culture a lot of reasons to hate Christians and Christianity. But if you think about it, the, the, there's a unique revulsion that people have towards Christianity. I mean, I've, I, I mean, you've, you may have heard people say, "Okay, I'm not a Buddhist." I don't identify with Buddhism, but I at least can appreciate that philosophy. Or you've heard people say, "Okay, I'm not a I'm not a Hindu," but you know, I, if that if that's good for you, if that works for you, sweet, great. I've heard people say, uh, you know, I, I don't believe in Islam, but I know lots of amazing people that are you know practicing Muslims. And I don't I don't always hear the same benefit of the doubt that's given to Christianity or to Christians. In fact, I was just thinking of different books or things that were written, and, and, and I. Googled this this morning, Um, you know, Bertrand Russell, who's a famous atheist philosopher, wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. He wanted people to know, here are the reasons why I am not associated with this. Frederick Nietzsche wrote uh, one of his famous works called The Antichrist, in which is just him critiquing Christianity. In fact, he refers to Christians as domestic animals, sick animal men. Uh, I looked around Amazon. Like I said this morning, there are books called Hating Jesus, Ten Things I Hate About Christianity. There's a Huffington Post article from a few years ago, Five Reasons Why I Hate Religious Christianity. That's just what I mean. There's a unique revulsion to Christianity. But, Peter says, you're, you're not only going to be slandered, insulted, reviled. There's the second way that people are going to respond. Look at Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He's saying, be prepared to make a defense when somebody asks you about this hope that you have. Why would somebody ask you about this hope that you have? Because they're compelled by the way that you're living your life. You would have to live your life in such a way for somebody to say, okay, you are, there's something different about you. Help me understand what is your hope. Help me understand what is your driving principle in life, why you are so different. And you put both of these together, here's what Peter is saying. Being a Christian should be both revolting and attractive to people at the same time. If you are walking in the way of Jesus, you should expect both criticism and curiosity, condemnation And affirmation. That's what I mean. When people are confused, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know what to do with this church. I don't believe. I don't like your beliefs. I think what you believe is weird and backwards. And yet, we are so thankful for you. What would we do without you in this city? People. Do people look at you and and, and realize, okay, what you believe is really weird, and the way that you live your life, gathering in warehouses, is really strange. But I can't argue with the fact that y'all are unbelievably generous unbelievably compassionate. As some of you might know, before I was a pastor here, uh, my wife and I were doing campus ministry with RUF. And one of my uh, favorite memories in 11 years of doing campus ministry was after one of our weekly large group meetings. You know, we meet together on campus with all these students. And there was this one young man that came up to me after the Evening was over, and he introduced himself. And he 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 just looked very different from all of the rest of the people that were typically coming in our group at that time. He wore this like neon yellow tank top, and his arm you know these you know big tattoo sleeves down his arms had these big gauges in his uh, ears, just like super cool looking, super confident guy. Comes up to me, introduces himself, and he says, "Hey, I just wanted to introduce myself. I want you to know I'm not a Christian. I don't believe any of this stuff, but um, some of my friends." are involved here and they invited me to come and they've just been amazing people. And so I thought I had to check out this thing that they're into. And I thought what you talked about was kind of interesting. And so I'll I'll be coming back. You can expect to see me around. And I just thought, that is awesome. Here's this guy that knows, okay, I don't believe any of the stuff that y'all believe. What y'all believe is weird and crazy, but I have been loved in such a way that I had to come and check this thing out. What what, what is this that y'all are, what what is this? What did that take for him to be, you know, revolted, if that's a word, (laughs) and attracted at the same time? It took people loving him really well. People that befriended him, cared about him, were interested in his life. When spiritual topics kind of got brought up, they talked about their faith in Jesus and what they thought about the Bible and this and that. And he said, okay, this is really strange. I don't believe any of this stuff, but I got to go check this out. Are you confusing your neighbors? The blessed life for me and you would be to love our neighbors in such an over the top, radical, sacrificial, tangible way where they would look at us and say, okay, I don't believe what you believe, but I am very curious about this whole thing because I- I've, never been, I've never been cared for like this before. Confuse your neighbors. Fight your instincts, confuse your neighbors. Here's the last thing, quickly, lastly. Receive your substitute. Receive your substitute. Look at verse 17. He says, it's better to suffer for doing good than for evil. Kind of obvious. It's better to suffer if you're pouring out your life for the vulnerable. It's better to suffer if you're giving your resources away to care for the poor. Better to do that than to suffer for just being a jerk online, Right? But why should we do this? Because this, this road that Peter is calling us to do, it is a life of suffering. To fight your instincts is to suffer. Uh, I mean, it, this, is, this, is not your, this is not my natural default. When, when, when you are criticized by your spouse, your natural instinct is not to bless. Your natural instinct is to defend yourself, to shift blame, to make excuses, to, to fight back it is not our natural instinct to want to confuse our neighbors. We don't really want our neighbors to know what we believe because we want our neighbors to like us. We want them to accept us. We don't want them to slander us. To fight your instincts and to confuse your neighbors is to choose a life of suffering. Why can we do this? Well, look, here's this motivating force that Peter gives us here at the end. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered, you see that? He says, here's why you should do this, because Christ also suffered. He's hooking our suffering into the reality that Jesus suffered as well. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus was just our example, and he just said, hey, Jesus suffered, so you should go out and suffer. If Jesus was just our example that you should go out and copy and emulate, that really is not a strong enough motivator long-term. So Peter takes it a step deeper. He says, if you really want to suffer, if you want to live this blessed life, the life that Jesus calls us to, you have to know why Jesus suffered. Why did Jesus suffer? Look at verse 18. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered as the righteous one for the unrighteous ones on behalf of the guilty, the innocent on behalf of the guilty. I read the story um, recently about, about this uh, episode that took place centuries ago in ancient China. And the story goes like this. There was this town, this little village, and this bailiff kind of local police officer figure goes to the local judge and says, hey, we just arrested somebody for stealing water. Stolen water, and you know, kind of the the, the penalty for this crime is that this person has to be publicly beaten in the town square 40, 40 lashes on their back. And so, the judge says, Okay, take me to this person that was arrested. And the judge gets brought to this woman that has just been arrested for stealing water, and it's his mother, it's the judge's mom. And so, now he's in this terrible situation because if he he loves his mom. He doesn't want his mom to suffer in this way and be punished in this way. And yet he knows if he doesn't condemn and convict his own mother, then there's just going to be anarchy. There's, everything's going to, you know, break loose. There's going to, everybody's going to be doing whatever they want. There's no justice in this city, in this village. So the town gathers together and he kind of pronounces this sentence, uh, miss, you know, so-and-so, whatever, you, you have been, uh, found guilty for stealing water. And the penalty is to receive 40 lashes tied to the pole. So they tie his mother to the pole and her back is stretched out and exposed. And then, so the story goes, the judge goes to the police officer and says, I want you to make sure that all 40 lashes land on my back. And he takes off his robe or his gown or I don't know, whatever he was wearing. And he goes and he drapes himself over his mother, covers her back with his back and all 40 lashes land on him instead. He's the righteous one, the innocent one, suffering on behalf of the guilty. And Peter's saying that that is exactly what Jesus does for us. He is the truly innocent one. He has always fought his instincts. He's always returned evil with blessing. He's the one that's always been confusing his neighbors. There were people that hated him and ultimately arrested him and executed him, and yet there were people that were drawn to him because they saw something in him of utter, unique beauty. Here's this one that is truly innocent, truly righteous, and what does he do? On the cross, he comes and he stretches himself over us, as it were, and he receives all of the judgment, all of the punishment. It lands on him instead of us. Now you can hear that and think, okay, this is just, this is just a call to shame myself. I've, I've got to get my act together because I, I was really bad. I made Jesus suffer. I can't yell at my kids anymore because I, my yelling at my kids is what made Jesus suffer. This is not a call to shame yourself. This is not an invitation to beat yourself up. It is an invitation to look to the one who was beaten up, for you. And by his grace has now liberated you to live this blessed life. But the only way that you will do it is if you receive it. You have to personalize this. It's one, you know, Christians, we can talk about this in very vague general terms. Jesus died for our sins, and this just vague. You have to personalize it. You have to use personal pronouns. He died for my entitlement. He died for my laziness, the fact that I yell at my kids. He died for my porn addiction, my over-drinking, my whatever. If you are able to particularize this and personalize this, that is when the chemical reaction happens in your soul, as it were, and you're burst free, where you are now free to respond to evil with blessing. You're now able to love your, you're you're now free to love your neighbors in such a way where it might be radically confusing for them. So you want the good life, the blessed life, the happy life? It looks very different than we're tempted to thinking it is. It involves fighting your instincts. It involves confusing your neighbors. And most importantly, it involves receiving your substitute. For some of you, maybe the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, Either way, consider it an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you do um, love us in such a way that you would send your son to cover us and absorb all of the punishment that we deserve. And I pray that that act of love, that experience of grace would so get into our very bones that, that we would live radically strange, different lives in the way that we care for the people in our city and our neighborhood transform us only by only in the way that you can. I pray all this in Jesus name.